1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'll read out the New King James Version. God's Word says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink the milk of the flock? Do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written. That he who plows should plow in hope. And he who threshes in hope should be a partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things that it should be done so to me. For it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. What is my reward then? That when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge. That I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ. That I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body. And bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. We have been in the midst of our study 
and in Corinthians looking the last two weeks at a basic principle that's going to be applied now in chapter 9 and chapter 10. And that basic principle is really laid out for us right away in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. And I want you to turn there again. And it's summarized in one sentence. It's a very brief sentence for Paul. Paul loves long sentences. But in this instance, we have a very brief sentence that summarizes the principle that Paul's applying uh, throughout most of Corinthians, but particularly in chapters 8, 9, and 10. And that little brief sentence is, Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And this is the foundational principle that he has uh, dealt with many of the issues confronting the church in Corinth, is that knowledge puffs up. That is, it, it exalts the self. It creates this uh, illusion, and that's really what it is, because we all know what puffed up means is that it takes very little to collapse it. It just takes a little pointy object and suddenly it falls flat. But knowledge puffs up. It, it, it gives us this illusion of grandeur, of greatness for ourselves. But love builds up, and that's how word edifies. It builds. It has an enduring quality about it. It is that which is going to uh, fortify the lives of others. And that is the principle that Paul wants to use as he examines uh, this area in the Corinthian church, which is, do I exercise the right to exercise my rights with disregard for those around me? And that's been the question that the Corinthians had. Is it okay to eat meat offered to idols is where it all begins. Um, it, it, it is an area that is bringing into question how much of my old life, how much of my life before Christ do I leave behind me in my mature walk with the Lord? And while Paul is going to adamantly defend, particularly in the book of Galatians, that we have a liberty in Christ. That all things are lawful for us. And we all, when we think we're getting to maturity, and this is the danger, a uh, little knowledge is a dangerous thing, we think that this is maturity, is that I have discovered or I have a knowledge of these liberties that I have in Christ, and I'm going to live them out, and don't you dare judge me for that, because... Um, that just shows how small you are. You don't know the liberties of Christ. And yes, Paul is very adamant in defending those liberties, that they do exist. And he's going to extend it even further in chapter 9 into the rights of apostleship and the rights of preachers. Um, and again, I am frustrated by our approach to this passage and by other pastors' approach to this passage that would seek to exert those rights. The whole foundation boils down to the simple principle that just because you know you have those rights does not give you uh, the right to exercise them. Doesn't that sound strange? You see, genuine Christian maturity is loving. That is, I'm not concerned about my rights. 
I'm not concerned about getting what I deserve. I'm not concerned about making sure that, that uh, I get to live out the liberty that Christ has made me free in. But rather, I am primarily, overwhelmingly concerned about others. Where are they in Christ? What can I do to promote their walk with our Lord? What can I do? How can I live in such a manner that attracts them to Christ for those who are without Him? You see, it's no longer about my liberty. It's about their deliverance. And this is what love is. It is sacrificial. And Christ, of course, is our picture. He is our example that He had every right. I mean, here is God walking on earth, right? How many rights did He possess? All of them. There's a song He could have called 10,000 angels. He, he, didn't, he had the right not to die. He hadn't sinned. He had done no error. There was nothing that brought that wage upon Him. Yet He gave up His right to life for you and I. Why? Because He loved you. And so when Paul says, yes, you know your rights, that's great. But don't be foolish in thinking that equals maturity. That just a knowledge of more of the Bible equals wisdom. Well, I know the Bible says this. And we have given some examples of that in the modern world. We don't have the issue at hand in Corinth, which was about meat offered to idols. Uh, We don't have that issue um, that we really deal with in our society. But, oh, we do have some issues, don't we? That we can go and we can search the Scriptures and we can find some excuses to continue living no different than the way we lived before we were Christians. And we say, oh, I have my favorite verse that says it's okay for me to do this. And we ignore huge portions of Scripture that describe the misery that is brought, not maybe on yourself, but on others, because of you exercising your rights. We looked at alcohol last week, and yes, there's a verse that says, drink a little wine for your stomach's sake. There is a verse in Proverbs that does say, give strong drink to those who are mourning. Um, We do have those occasional verses. But the principle of love says, why? Why would I allow something in my life that people will look at and say, if that's in your life and it's in my life, there's no difference between it. Therefore, Christ makes no difference. Therefore, I have no reason to follow Him. So like Paul we need to come to a mature position that recognize in my loving concern for others and their spiritual state, I'm willing to give up anything and everything necessary for that. And we're not talking about hurting people's feelings. Remember, that's two weeks ago. We're not worried. This is Offense is not about hurting feelings. Offense means that you are causing people to doubt Christ. You are causing them to doubt, is salvation really worth anything? And the real question in the modern vernacular, is there any difference? If Christ makes no difference in your life compared to the world's lives, the way they live, 
then you have misrepresented Christ to them. And when the unbelievers and those who have made a profession of faith to our new believers see you living no differently than the way they lived before Christ, their conclusion is Christ makes no difference. Therefore, I'll keep searching somewhere else for something to solve this dilemma of my life. This is the conclusion of chapter 8. And Paul is going to take chapter 9 to take this principle farther by giving his personal example of his own ministry. Of how far do we take this concept that just because you know you can does not mean you should. Let's go Lord in prayer before we get into our text in chapter 9. Lord God, we do thank You for Your love for us and we do commit this time to You and I pray that You might work in us that we might be receptive to Your truth. And Lord, it is Yours. It is Your truth. And we pray Your Spirit I may at work in this time to guard it from error, from the opinions of this man or any man, that it might uh, be free from the philosophies of this world, that what is communicated today might accurately reflect what you would want us to know from your word. We need your help. For it to be rightly spoken, rightly received, and rightly applied. Lord, help us. In Christ Jesus' Jesus name. Amen. Chapter 9 begins with a series of questions. And the questions are all in the affirmative. Paul is all these things. He is an apostle. He is the one that brought them the gospel. He is their uh, one who has uh, uh, produced that uh, opportunity for the Corinthians to come to Christ. Uh, he says, maybe that's not true for others, but when it comes to you, Corinthians, I am the one that introduced the gospel to your city. I am the one that you heard it from. I am your apostle. I am your father, if you will, in the Lord. I am that one who uh, who has preached to you the gospel. And so based upon that history, that you are in your current condition because of my ministry, uh, let me talk about the rights of apostleship. The rights of the one who is sharing the gospel. And he starts to list them off um, because apparently there was already a contingency in Corinth who were starting to undermine who Paul was. He wasn't an eloquent speaker. He admitted that. Apollos was the eloquent one. Um, he recognized that he wasn't an eloquent speaker. Uh, and so it's easy to say, well, he's not a great preacher. And I can just imagine people walking out of services where Paul the Apostle is the pastor, and that's exactly what you'd say on the drive home. Uh, he's just not pretty to look at, and, he, and it's hard for me to concentrate. We were talking this uh, weekend at the Bahamas about uh, falling asleep in services and things like that, and how difficult it is. Um, and we discovered that if you take notes, you don't fall asleep as well. As easy. Not as well. As well sounds like it's a good thing. Uh, but we are uh, uh, sure that uh, 
It's the preacher's fault. And Paul was their preacher. Wasn't eloquent. Um, people did fall asleep. We learned that uh, at communion last Sunday. Right? Eutychus falls asleep in the window, falls out the window and dies. Now that's great preaching, isn't it? We're sure that that's our pastor's job is to make sure that he keeps our attention. And I get to compete with all kinds of media and video games and iGods um, and it's not going to happen. It is your responsibility. But Paul says, here I am. I'm the guy. Ugly as I am, as diseloquent as I am, I'm the guy that brought you the gospel. And I've been called of God to this ministry and with that ministry carries a certain set of rights. And so he has a, I have a right to eat and drink. That is, I have a right to provide for my basic needs of life. I have a right not only that, but also to take a wife, he says. In verse 5, I have a right to take a believing wife with me that, that I can bring a wife along and, and expect her to be able to eat and drink as well. She should be taken care of. Um, and it's interesting, he says, you know, this is pretty much the condition of everyone else. Cephas, our the uh, brothers of Jesus, uh, they have wives. The other apostles, they have wives. Uh, Barnabas and I don't, but that doesn't mean we don't have a right to have one. He says, we have the right to this. He says, are we the only ones who aren't allowed to be free from working? We know Paul and Barnabas were tent makers. They went out and worked to provide for their own sustenance. And so they were working while they were preaching. And so they were, we would consider them tent making ministries, uh, lay pastors, if you will. They had secular job. That was, uh, there, there's no such thing for a Christian, but, um, we'll call it that. They had a secular occupation of tent making. Uh, he was apparently good enough at it that, uh, it provided for his needs, by and large. But he says, do I have to work? Don't I have the right to live off of the gospel? That is that I have the right with expectation that if I'm going to give you the gospel, he says later on uh, in verse 11, we have sown spiritual things for you. It's a great thing if we reap your material things. He says, it's not a big thing. Uh, the exchange rate here uh, needs to be understood. I am presenting you with something of eternal value. And our world really has devalued that. And, and the church has devalued that message. That there's something wrong with that message that needs to be tweaked for our generation. That God didn't quite get it exactly best for our modern sensitivities. And so let's not call things sin, just mistakes. And let's uh, revamp this gospel. They've devalued the truth. Paul says, I have brought to you something of eternal value. A solution to your sin, his name is Jesus. How much is that worth to you? How much is coming and hearing God's word taught worth to you? He says, if I have to have my needs taken care of and I give you something of eternal value that it will radically change your life, not only for the rest of your days on earth, but for all eternity, you'll have a benefit from that. How much is it worth to you? It's a small thing for me to expect some material payment for that. 
uh, that you'll take care of my needs. And so he's going through and he's listing these off. He has, he has some Old Testament basis for this. He quotes out of Moses, the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Um, and God isn't that worried about oxen, he says. He's really for us. Make sure you pay your workers. And if I'm here as a worker of the gospel, make sure that I don't have to also worry about my physical needs. That I can focus my attention on the spiritual things. This is what was coming out in the book of Acts in the early church as the church was in gathering, as people were generous in their giving to meet the needs of the orphans and widows particularly. And uh, there's some debate and some argument over whether it was being distributed evenly and appropriately. And the apostles said, um, you know, you don't want us dealing with that. You don't want us using up our time to deal with those material things. You pick out seven guys to deal with that and we will keep doing what you want us to keep doing. That is to spend time in God's Word and in prayer. Because out of that work, you will get eternal dividends. You will get something of greater value than food for the day. You will get spiritual nourishment. So they recognize even back then that necessity that if we want these men to really immerse themselves in God's truth so they can bring that out and communicate to us effectively, uh, then we're going to have to make sure that their material needs are taken care of, that they're not earthly minded, that they don't have to worry about whether there's food on the table. And so Paul says it's not a great thing to care for the material needs of the one who's bringing you the gospel, the truth. And so we even have, verse 14, that the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So we have all this body of evidence. Paul, as a great lawyer here, has presented his facts. Here they are. Here's the body of evidence that says, listen, these are the rights of those who preach, who, make it, who have the calling of God on them in sincerity to preach God's truth without compromise in love. Here's the body of evidence. You have the example of the other apostles. You have the uh, rights that are established there out of the Old Testament law. We have them out of the commandments of Christ. You have all of this evidence that yes, here is a right to demand, to exercise, and say, based upon the authority of God's calling on the one to preach the gospel, this is how he should be cared for physically. And if Paul was an immature pastor, he would be demanding those rights. And I find some men out there like that today who quote these verses out of context, out of the larger context of the principle of chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, and they demand those rights. And listen, you've got to take care of me, and they all re- these are my requirements. And, and as, a, as a, uh, being in the position in the past of having interviews of, church, of candidates for pastorate who come in and say, who send in their resume, and they say, here are my 
uh, here's my financial requirements to come as your pastor. And pretty much those I just say shredder. Because they're not mature enough in the Lord to realize God takes care of those things. And in the course of my ministry here, um, especially since 2000, 2001, um, never have I said, this is what I deserve to be paid. This is what I need to be paid. Frankly, I don't need to be paid anything. I would do this for free. I have done this for free. I would continue doing it. At our last business meeting in January, Bill said something really scary. He says, we ought to raise pastor's salary and get ready for a real pastor. <laughs> so that we're ready for another guy that's going to have to get paid. Why does he say that? Because he knows I don't need it. I don't want it. But does that mean that I don't have a right to it? Oh, this is the principle, people. That yes, we have this American philosophy that, that if rights are only worth anything if you exercise them. But that is American thinking. And it is not Christian thinking. Having rights and exercise them are very different things. And we are sure that, I, that because I have these set of rights that my government has said that I have, I should exercise them. And so I'm calling my lawyer if you violate my rights. That's something Paul didn't have to deal with, I don't think. You don't find him calling his lawyer. Oh, he did on occasion say, hey, I'm a citizen. Are you allowed to do this to me? And I got everyone scared, but it's interesting. He didn't do it to avoid it. He did it after the fact. He said, uh, I'm a Roman. But here before the church, does he exercise his rights to all of to have a, not have to have a secular job, to have to eat and to drink, to have physical, material gain out of his ministry of the gospel for your spiritual gain, to have a believing wife that you're going to care for and, and, and feed as well and clothe. Uh, yes, he has all these rights and all the evidence. That's the knowledge. And it's easy to get puffed up in that knowledge. And pastors who do that will always preach at their people and not to them. They will always have this me-them. The us-them, the pastorate and the congregation. They all have this attitude, this immature attitude that says, I, I'm not treated as well as I ought to be. I'm not appreciated as much as I should be by my congregation. And because they have this knowledge that they have these rights, I should be treated this way and that way. And here's the verses that prove it. And they're there. Paul has no problem tapping those verses, does he? I've got verses out of the Old Testament. I've got the commands of Christ. I've got the example of other Christians. Uh, and, and by the way, um, some of the financial people out there, here's what they tell our deacons to do. That you are to take a sampling of other churches, see what they're paying their pastor. And while you're at it, you should be sampling other corporations to see what they're paying their executive leadership. The day you compare me to a CEO of a corporation is the day I quit. It's not my job. We are nowhere, nowhere close to one another. 
Neither was Paul. And as a mature man of God, he knew his rights. He had a knowledge of it, but there was wisdom there. For true maturity recognizes that all those rights stacked up all the way to the ceiling do not compare to this one activity, and that is love, whose purpose is not selfish, but selfless. Love's purpose is to build up others. Love edifies. I know I have all the rights in the Scripture to claim these, but I don't. And Paul calls us to this kind of activity. He says, listen, I'm not requiring anything of you that I haven't exemplified before you myself. I have all these rights as your apostle. As the guy who brought you the gospel, as the guy who started the church at Corinth, I have all these rights. But, I choose not to exercise them. And that's in verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 9. It says, but I have used none of these things. Nor have I written that these things should be done so to me. He says, I'm not writing you all this so you can start treating me right. I'm writing so that you understand here's where my rights stand. And here's my relationship to those. I set them all aside. I don't claim them. I don't exercise them. I know they exist. I know that that I could be considered righteous and still claiming them, but I wouldn't be considered mature. For a mature believer sets aside his liberties for the opportunity to serve. I set them aside. Because your edification is of more importance and of more consequence than me getting my rights. And this is foreign to our way of thinking. In fact, your mind has been trained in the opposite direction by your culture, by your government. You are sure that what it means to live in the land of the free and the home of the brave means that you are going to claim and exercise every right afforded to you by your government. And if that's what it means to be a real American, That may be true, but it is not what it means to be a real Christian. Reality is, as a Christian, true Christianity is expressed by the surrendering of all of our rights if necessary, even to the point of imprisonment and death, if it means that others can be built up in Christ. Paul says, I've given it up. I've set it aside. I'd rather die than exercise those rights. I'd rather die than go out here and say, you deserve to, I deserve to have you pay me so I don't have to make these crazy tents anymore. So I can spend more time praying and reading the gospel. And he would have been justified in that, right? But he says, I'm not going to do that. In fact, I'd rather die than do that. Because it's going to rob me of my ministry. And brethren, I want to share with you that in the church, your ministry, 
the ministry of the church universal, of the churches in this valley, in this land, and around the world are being robbed regularly because we are so concerned about our rights instead of our ministry, our service. What do I get out of it instead of what can I put into it? We walk around looking for a church to meet our needs. Well, you're demonstrating a level of spiritual immaturity that is vacant of biblical love. It says, how can I minister here? How can I serve? How can I give up my rights to serve here? Paul says, I'm free. I'm a free man. And he was. He's a Roman citizen, a freeman. Verse 19 says, I'm a free from all men. That's his condition. In Christ, you are free. You have that kind of liberty. But here, this one who is free in citizenship, he is free spiritually in Christ, and says, I've made myself a servant to all. I've enslaved myself to all. I am following the pattern of Christ. Christ who is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. God on high, the Creator of all things, humbled Himself and became a servant even to the point of death. This is our example. And Paul wanted to live it out. And true maturity in Christ is not to seek your own, but to seek the edification of others. So Paul talks about his willingness to preach, his necessity to preach. He has to preach because God has called him to do it. And he recognizes he has a stewardship before God for this. He says, if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have been entrusted with a stewardship. And so he says, listen, yes, I have these great liberties, but I also are going to answer to God for how I used them, whether for myself or to build up others. And this demand where we will answer to God, not for how free you lived, but for how well you served, is the motivation of ministry. That if I genuinely love others as I already love myself, which is too much, then I'll serve them as much as I possibly can. And in the midst of that service, I am ready and willing to sacrifice everything, every right that I possess. that I will not let cross my lips those words, I shouldn't be treated like that by them. Think about it. Paul started this church in Corinth, gave him the gospel, loved him and trained him, worked hard to earn his own way so he wouldn't be a burden to anybody, taught them everything he knew. And now a few years later, Some of us are saying, who's Paul? They're actually seeking to undermine his own ministry. And you don't find Paul saying, 
why did you treat me this way? He says, I, I, I'm fine. And in Philippians is probably our best statement of that. Even if some preach the gospel uh, to, tr- to try to add injury to my chains, I'm okay with that as long as the gospel is getting preached. It doesn't matter the injury that comes to the true mature servant of God. He will keep serving because he knows fundamentally whether you appreciate or value the ministry of what is being given, the gospel that is being taught to you, whether you value it or not, and whether you want to fulfill this idea of the expectation of caring for his physical needs, he must preach. He must. The weight is on his shoulders. Say, I love God, and he wants me to do this work, and I and I see the lost, and I see their need, and our love for them must compel us to give them the gospel, and it would be best to give it to them at no cost at all. And then to see a body of saints come out of that and say, I can't compel them toward anything of this world. I want nothing to stand between them and Christ. I want nothing to prevent them from hearing the gospel and from being trained in it and I praise the Lord for our leadership of our church that, that uh, a couple of years ago decided, you know, why are we charging kids to come to Word of Life clubs? We can afford to give them handbooks and to give them Bibles and give them little uniforms. We can afford that. And you know what? We have afforded that. In fact, based upon the business meeting last week, It's the one fund that just seems to keep going and going and going. The more we spend out of it, the bigger it gets. Because we refuse to charge anyone in this neighborhood to come hear the gospel. And I'm just kind of going, it's about time. We are so stupid for waiting all these years to do that. Paul says, listen, I have all these rights. And I know them. (laughs) I know what I'm giving up. The question is, do you? Do you understand what mature Christianity really involves? We're going to look at that more next week as we look at the end portions of this chapter. But I want to just share once again out of Paul's ministry. He recognized that all of his life wasn't for himself, but for others. And so he tells back in Philippians, for me to live, it's Christ. To die is gain. If I wanted to be real selfish, I'd get out of here. I wouldn't have to put up with you people. I wouldn't put up with my family. I wouldn't have to worry about who's paying the bills. You ever think about that? Once you're dead, what bills do you care about? I think about those things sometimes. Um, I don't have to worry about all these things. I don't have to deal with all this. And the most selfish act ends up being, you know, for my gain, for my personal interest, it would be I would want to be with Christ, which is far better. But while I'm alive... It is not for my benefit to live. It is for yours. 
And Paul looked at his life and says, I have one object in my life, one object, one, one goal, one, one, one calling, and that is to make sure that others are served well with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is the definition of my life. It defines what it means to live on this earth until I'm in Christ's presence. That while I'm alive, it's good for them. It should be good for others. You see, and this is the opposite of what we've been taught. We've been taught that we are to grab life for ourselves. For our enjoyment. For our diversion. For our comfort. We should grab life for ourselves. And then we wonder why everyone around us is miserable. Because there's no joy in serving yourself. And the more you grasp after it in whatever area you want to do that, and I challenge you to read a really smart guy who learned the hard way, as wise as he was, how worthless that was. He went after money, didn't satisfy him. Because he's serving himself with it. He went after women, pleasure, wine, song, entertainment. It didn't satisfy him. He was doing it for himself. He went after just the pursuit of knowledge. Puffed him up, but didn't satisfy him. Because it was for himself. He wasn't serving others. And his father, David, had a very different relationship with God. And it was based upon David was there to serve his people, not himself. Brother, we walk into that foolishness every day when we say, don't I have a right to be happy? Sure you do. The ironic thing is, you'll never get it till you surrender the right to it and serve others. And your joy will be overflowing. This week, I had an opportunity to serve a bunch of little kids. Whether it was scrambled eggs and bacon, or not bacon, sausage, or what else did we have? Hot dogs, whatever it was. Or just holding the flashlight so they could find the toilet in the middle of the night. It was fun. It was enjoyable. Because I wasn't serving myself. And I say, well, wasn't it tiring? Sure it was. Did you have the right to expect to go up and sleep in the man camp with all the other men? Sure I did. Why would I exercise that? Then I'd lose the opportunity to minister to these little boys. Many of which do not have a stable father at home. I wasn't there for my own comforts. I was there for them. And there is the power of Christ. It's not in knowing your rights and exercising them, but of knowing your rights and surrendering them. 
so that you can lovingly serve others. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.